Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang. It's great to have you with us once again. I'm Mike, alongside Mark and Barry. And our guest on this podcast today, Mark, is one of your old teammates, Phil Nevin, a guy who has had a hell of a baseball life. Mike, former teammate, but also a really good friend. And I tell you what, I've always said this. I think that he has managing skills in the big leagues. He has opportunity. He's had some interviews that he's done really well, but now he's settled in and he's the third base coach of the New York Yankees. Quite a quite an introduction. I, pre- I appreciate it. Well, buddy, you, you have lived the life that, that most of us, especially as fans, really could only dream about. And typically, we start the show asking our guests about their major league beginning. But your story to us was so fascinating long before that point that that's really where I want to begin today. Explain us how it is that a kid who grew up in Southern California, a football star and a baseball star, passes up being drafted in the third round by his hometown, Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. Um well, I think if we go back to the exact date, I had no idea what was going to happen in the draft that day. Um, I think probably because of lack of education on it, lack of knowledge with it. Um, my high school coach took me out of class uh, right around lunchtime and told me I was drafted by the Dodgers, and I had no idea the round or anything like that. But um, right away, I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm gone. I'm Dodgers. you kidding me? That's, I grew up a Dodger fan and Ben Scully, and I, I – Went to bed at night. That's how I learned, really, the game of baseball. People ask me. I learned the game of baseball going to bed at night, listening to Dodger games and, and Ben Scully. Um, you know, something cool the other ha- happened the other night. We were just sitting around the house, and not to get off topic, but uh, my son and I, Tyler, and I were watching, uh, just flipping through the channels and found a Dodger game from, I don't know, five, six years ago. And uh, there we were listening to – we couldn't turn it. We knew what happened. We looked up the game, and we couldn't turn it because – and then I saw him send out a tweet saying, Dad and I sitting around listening to Vince Scully like the old days. This is how I learned the game. And it was uh, – it's true. I mean, that's – he listened to him too, but I did. Every single night I would listen to Vince Scully before I went to bed. That's how I learned the game. But going back uh, – I wanted to sign and I wanted to go play pro ball. I wanted to be a Dodger from the get go. And uh, this was more of a parental decision, if you will. They wanted me to go to college. I think, uh, you know, I was going to go to Fullerton and be right down the road. They were going to get a chance to watch me. My parents were for the next few years at least. And um, he didn't want me to give up football either. So, and we, we use the term football star a little loosely here. I was a kicker. Let's go back to that. I was a kicker. So, I mean, that was a pretty decent one, but I don't know about you say you call it football star. That's, that's, that's generous. <laughs> well, Phil, I'll tell you this. And uh, as a former teammate of yours during this podcast, it's not going to be a secret. We're going to hear intensity. We're going to hear some great stories. We're also going to hear uh, loyalty coming from you, but it really started in a particular place, your high school coach. And also you touched on going to Fullerton, which was another choice uh, legendary uh, head coach, Augie Garrido, who passed away. But those two guys had a huge influence on you. Can you touch on that just a little bit? Yeah, you're really, really lucky to, you know, grow up where I did, for one, Southern California. We're able to play sports year-round. But uh, when I did get to high school, uh, Steve Galati uh, had a chance to play for him there for four years and still a very close friend. We, we, we talk daily. Uh, we go on Harley rides together. We go to football games together. Uh, just a, a, a big influence on my baseball career. Uh, you talk about intensity. Uh, uh, somebody that, that taught me the game and how to play it the right way, the respect of it. Uh, just a really great guy to be around. Great family guy. Uh, enjoy our friendship still to this day. Uh, and I know he's – He's always been a huge Yankee fan, and, and for him to get a chance to go back and see the stadium and be around Yankee Stadium, <laughs> watch tears in his eyes come down when I took him out into the monuments and walked him around the outfield, uh, things like that to give back to those people that, that, that are, have that influence on your life uh, was pretty special. And he's been back a couple times now, and it's the same reaction. It's great. Hey, Phil. Um 
First of all, let me say, I totally echo what you said about Vince Scully. I grew up listening to him uh, as a resident of LA, and that's where I learned almost everything I know about baseball. But let me go back to after the draft, uh, the standard, if there is such a thing as a standard path, uh, is to then go to some sort of training camp, get into a rookie league, uh, go to instructional league once that's over, get ready for your first real spring training. That's not exactly what happened with you. Can you describe your path? Oh, you're talking about after the... After the draft. When I, after, after college, after I signed up. After college. Yeah, uh, after I was drafted in 92 with Houston, um, which you know, we can talk about the whole process leading up to that draft too. That was interesting, but... Yeah, I signed it. It just happened to be an Olympic year, uh, which was one of my greatest experiences in baseball, uh, being able to represent your country. Um, but the, the Olympics were later on that summer. So normally the draft is in June. You sign, you go out and play. Uh, the, the athletes, that, the players that were on that team, we all agreed to because we were going to miss that entire year. We all agreed to 1993 contracts, even though we were 1992 drafts. So when we got back, I think it was the uh, first, second week of September. Um, we, we had asked for a September call. We weren't going to get it, obviously. But instead, the Astros took me to Houston with the team. And I spent the last three weeks of the season there in Houston. Um, it was cool when it first started. Uh, I met the team in San Francisco, went to a nice dinner with a lot of the guys. and. Um, <clears throat> But as I sat there, first off, I was frustrated because I couldn't play. And I heard this is rookie kid that's never been around these guys sitting on the bench and, and looking back as a player thinking, what is this guy doing there? I mean, that's kind of how I would have treated it. But I mean, for three weeks, I sat there on the bench. I did all the pregame stuff. Um, so it was, it was probably a little awkward. Um, I learned a lot, certainly, uh, and then went from there to instructional league. But uh, definitely a, a it's certainly a different uh, <laughs> incoming so to speak uh being around those guys in that light I and mean, they treated me well i made i still have great friends from it and learned a lot from those guys but it was really weird to be honest with you being in that dugout and not being able to play and not being a part of the club very very peculiar i'm sure from not only your perspective but from theirs as well as we touched on, you're drafted in 92, first overall. Uh, you go on to this wonderful 12-year career, seven different teams, a lot of milestones along the way. But after you're back down in the minors, then you come up for what we call the more traditional call-up, right, in June of 1995. What do you remember about that moment when you were first told, all right, this time we need you up here to play? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, it was uh, it was early in June. Uh, we were playing in Tucson. Uh, I got to the ballpark. Rick Sweet was my manager. Um, some of us still still know Rick. Still in the game. Still oh yeah. Triple A. Uh, well, Sweetie, he, I get there and I'm I'm not in the lineup, so I didn't uh, usually take to those things well if I wasn't told or what have you. And I go marching into the manager's office. Uh, Rick, what, what's going on? Why, why am I not playing? He goes, I oh, know. I just thought it'd be a day. You know, he was trying to play the game here, but I think he knew me a little better. As it went on, I'm like, no, I'm playing tonight. What's going on? And I started getting a little more heated. He's like, all right, fine, fine. I'll tell you. Uh, and then he told me, you know, you're, you're playing tomorrow in Houston. Uh, take a little BP if you want, but. You know, we figured you'd probably fly out of Phoenix, which I did. My flight was the next morning out of Phoenix. I had a home in Phoenix at the time. So, yeah, I went out and took BP with the guys and packed up my stuff and went home <clears throat> and then flew on Sunday morning to Houston for my first game. It was a day game, 1 o'clock game. But, yeah, I don't know. I got to the park at about 11, 11.30, and it felt like it was a big rush and uh, you know, certainly an exciting day, but it, everything happened so fast. I probably didn't sleep the night before. And, and, uh, it felt like the game went by like that. I mean, I do remember it, but you know, it's, I think anybody that talks about their first game, it, it happens quick. Everything goes fast. And I have the memories of it, but like I said, it, it flew by. <laughs> uh, Nev, who was the one that you first called? Who was the one you told about, uh, it, after Rick Sweet told you, you were going to the big leagues. Who was that first communication with? 
Well, I call, I'm pretty sure I called Kristen, my wife, Kristen. She was up at the house in Phoenix and, and uh, called her and said, hey, I'll be home in a little while and told her why. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure my parents right after that. We had cell phones then, didn't we? Yeah. I hope yeah, so. We, <laughs> I think we had the ones that stuck on the floor in your car or something. Yeah, exactly. I was probably calling mom and dad and, and some friends maybe on the way back up to Phoenix, but sir, she was the, probably the first call. In fact, I know she was. We were heading out the next morning. Well, as you touched on, uh, you know, you go up to the big leagues, you get traded over Detroit, seven different teams, as Mike mentioned already. But I want to fast forward to San Diego because I think that's where you came over from Anaheim. You were a backup catcher coming over here and being versatile, but that was a pretty good move for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, I had some up and down moments for sure. My first four or five years of my major league career after that call up, we were just discussing it. Uh, you know, I, I got chances to play here and there, didn't make the most of my opportunities and had some chances to be part of a club uh, with, you know, as a bench player and really never accepted that role. And when I got traded over to the Padres and, and I remember actually, so the day before I get traded, right. Uh, Gary DeSarcina gets hit with a fungo, breaks his arm. Carlos Hernandez hit a fly ball, and he's jogging to first base. His Achilles blows out. So the Angels need a shortstop, and the Padres need a catcher. Uh, and I happened to catch that, and Andy Sheets was the shortstop. And then uh, we uh, next thing we do is uh, you know we're playing the game that day. Terry Collins calls me and says, hey, Nev, I need you to catch today. I was supposed to have a day off. Like, oh, okay. So. And Andy Sheets, sure enough, comes up in the first thing. He says, hey, I hear we're getting traded for each other. I go, well, maybe that's why I'm playing today. I don't know. Uh, and sure enough, after the game, the rumors started flying. I got the official word the next morning. And I hightailed it from Tempe out to Peoria back when there was only a Hooters. And maybe the in and out was there. I don't know. I, I remember I pulled into the park and I ran in the clubhouse. And first guy I saw was Trevor Hoffman. Hadn't got out on the field yet or had come in introduced me and took me into Boach's office. And uh, I remember walking in there going I, and hearing him for the first time. They'd just been in the World Series the year before. KT was in there. And I knew that I was going to give these guys everything I had. Probably going to be one of my last chances. But, you know, I was going to be the best role player. Whatever they needed me to do, I'd kind of put my mind to that, that, that this might be my last chance at, uh, at this level. Uh, the, as the season played out, I got a chance to play every day, which was nice. Um, and, I, and I made the most of that opportunity. But those people in, in front of me, I, Kevin Towers and Bruce Bochy, I, I was not going to let those guys down and, and also knew it was probably my last opportunity. When you flourish in the Padre uniform, you got to a point where you already had an agent and you had a scenario where you could sign an extension. But that brings up a pretty good story because it's a connection with a, a, our other host, Barry Axelrod. So can you explain that one, how that all went down? Yeah, we, uh, I got that chance like mid-July, maybe it was, and, and had a really nice month or so. And we're flying back from Miami. And we're, as Mark, as you know, our, our manager and GM, they were as inter interactive with our players as ever. And we're back playing a card game. and. I know it was myself. I know uh, Wally Joyner was playing. I know Boach was playing. I know KT was playing. I'm not sure who else, but I remember Wally asking Kevin, asking me the question, saying, hey, never, you arbitration eligible this year. I'm like, oh, yeah. He goes, well, that's going to look pretty nice with 20 homers or whatever you're at now. He looks at KT. He goes, we got to lock this guy up for a couple of years. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, geez, I've been a bench player for four years and I mean, I'll take anything. What do you got? They start writing numbers down. I'm just kind of laughing through all the game. And I remember Kevin saying, yeah, I'd do that. Cause while he was writing some, he slides his paper over in front of me and I'm looking at this going, man. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I'm there. I probably should talk to my agent. What do you think? And, uh, maybe anyway, we, we land and, and I start calling my agent at the time and can't get a hold of him for a day or two. I saw Barry in the parking lot the next day. And I, I started talking. And Barry and I had had a relationship, too, that when I signed with Houston, uh, Bagwell, Biggio, Rick Sutcliffe, who was not with the Astros, but they do this uh, 
rodeo every year in Vegas, still there. So I went out for the rodeo with Dennis Laborio and the guys. And, uh, that's where I met Barry and had a relationship with him over the years. So I felt like I could confide in him and ask him these questions. Hey, here's these numbers that Kevin put in front of me. What do I do? I mean, I, I mean, I got to take this right. And Barry starts talking. He talked to Wally a little bit. Well, he'll interject a little bit, but long story short, I know he went to Kevin because Kevin went to him and said, well, you talked to Nevin, didn't you? Cause you put in this option. He never would have thought about this. I still can't get a hold of my other agent. He was on an African safari, great guy, but uh, kind of fell out for a little bit there. And, and, uh, and I told Barry, I said, look, I was looking to make a change in the first place and brought it up to Barry and Barry can kind of take it from there. The way I recall it is, uh, I went to the game and I was going to meet with Wally after the game, have something to eat. So I'm waiting. I wander downstairs and I'm standing in the hallway and here comes Nev out of the weight room. And he just looks at me. He goes, Wally talked to you. And I said, no. He goes, okay, stay here. And he goes inside and uh, a minute later, out come Nev and Wally. Wally's in his, you know, underwear basically. And he's got a slip of paper in his hand and hands it to me. He goes, what do you think about this? And I said, for what? And he goes, for couple year deal for Nev. And I went, those are good numbers. You guys come up with these yourself. And I said, no, I, I think Kevin, Kevin will agree to that. We, we've got an agreement as long as we're good with it. And I said, those numbers are good. The only thing I do is, you know, to protect yourself and it'll be your last year before free agency, put an option here in there for a generous amount with a nice buyout just to protect yourself. Next morning, I get a call from Kevin, as Phil said. He's calling me names. I said, what did I, what's what? And he goes, you talked to Nev, didn't you? I said, Nev talked to me, Kevin. And I said, he goes, he would have never thought about an option year with a buyout. And I said, it's the right thing to do, isn't it? And he goes, yeah, but he never would have thought about that. So two minutes of work by Axelrod got him, what, 90% of that contract? No, I think <laughs> Phil honored his deal with his prior agent. That was our... That was our agreement. Phil took care of his prior agent as he should have. And uh, that's, uh, I did well enough on the next contract. Yeah, so that was say you did all right on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? No, Phil, you were right, though, from the get go. Your move over to San Diego uh, was fortuitous for a number of reasons. You had some marvelous years there. Uh, and it really does mark, in a way, a new major league beginning for you at that time. Your first season in, in San Diego is 99, as you guys are talking about. But then 2001, as we talk first, you have an opportunity to represent the Padres uh, in the All-Star game. Mm -hmm. Huge year for you all the way around. 306, 41 homers, 126 RBIs. What do you remember about that All-Star game at Safeco? Well, geez, I, I have a ton of memories, really. I think the, the, the best one was I got to share it with a lot of my teammates. Um, first off, Boach was asked to go up and be a coach. Uh, Tony Gwynn went in his final year. That was the year that Cal and Tony were, were brought in. For, to, they both played. Um, uh, Ryan Klesko was on the team. Um, so we had a pretty good Padre contingent that went. Uh, my son was Tyler at the time, and we have pictures during the home run derby of us all sitting around that we've gone back to and looked at. But I think those are the, the best memories having your family there, uh, your teammates there. We're all there together. Um, it was just a cool experience. I, I was disappointed in 2000 when I didn't make the club. Uh, and then when Bobby, Bobby Valentine was the one that actually called me. Um, in the clubhouse one day. And I remember when he did call, it was a, that was a really cool, it was like getting your first call up to the big leagues. You know, it was a, it was a really neat phone call to get and, and to get in the game and play a few innings, get it at bat off one of my good friends, Troy Percival, who I'd played with the year before. We're talking about it in the outfield too. So before the game, we're talking about this in the outfield. And Troy goes, you know we're going to face each other. Today. I'm like, oh, come on, what are the odds? I mean, I, I maybe get one at bat. You might throw one. Sure enough, Bobby tells me I'm going to third for Chipper the next inning. And I look up, and there's Percival out there warming up as I'm playing third. I'm going, oh, this is going to be great. And he tells me before the game, he says, all right, if I face you, I'm going to throw the first pitch right at your chin. 
get out of the way, but I'm going to groove you three heat. I'm going to groove you heaters right down the I groove. He throws a hundred miles an hour, but he, uh, <laughs> I get in the box. I'm, I'm geez. All right. He says he's going to throw at me, but there's no way he's going to throw at his buddy in the all-star game. Right. Sure enough, this first pitch right at my nose and I drop, I hit the dirt. I get out of the box. I look up and he kind of nods. I'm going, all right. So here comes a heater, right? Right down. Sure enough, right down the middle. And I just missed it. Flew out the right center. But that's my all-star at bat and the great experience with, you know, being able to share with your friends and family. It was a, it was a pretty cool day. I thought you were going to mention the Tommy Lasorda moment. Wasn't that? <laughs> what did you yeah. think about that? I was on the bench at the time and I was sitting kind of down for so when Vladimir Guerrero breaks his bat. And Tommy's over there. It's you know when Tommy gets out there, it's the Tommy Lasorda show. So he's mic'd up and he's yelling at everybody in the dugout. He's everybody on the field. He wants everybody to know that I'm coaching third base. And he's standing way down the line. He should not be down that far. No helmet either, if you remember. There's no helmet yeah. back then. Vladimir breaks his bat, and everybody's seen this replay. And here comes this sword flying at him. And it hits him in the chest. Thankfully, it's the it's the big end, the barrel, and it kind of bounces off. He takes a tumble. Everyone's laughing. But yeah, I was probably ten feet from Tommy when that happened. When you start thinking about uh, your career, and there's some influential people involved, but there's one, uh, the late Kevin Towers, mm-hmm. GM for the Padres, also the Arizona Diamondbacks. He had a huge part of your career, but also there was. To describe it, there was a little love-hate, more love than hate, but there was also an instance where I think Barry has a, a little bit about this too because he was your agent at the time. You hit a double, and then there's all kinds of stuff going on at Petco Park, and there was a run-in that you had, and even I have a backstory of that as well, but there was a run-in with Kevin Towers. Can you describe it from your lens? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you there you were. But sure, we when we first moved into Petco, I don't think there's any secret that, you know, it was a bit, first of all, a beautiful, most amazing place to call home. I loved every second of being there. Big misconception. I mean, sure, I certainly talked about the dimensions on time on the occasion. And in this particular day, we're playing the Pirates. Now we're in a race, mind you. We're We're competing. I mean, we're right there neck and neck with uh, maybe L.A. I don't remember who it was, but. Uh, it was in the bottom of the eighth inning. We were down a run. We had a couple of guys on, and I hit a ball that, for all intents, put it this way, it's a home run every day at Qualcomm <laughs> and a home run every day at most parks, and it hit the top of the wall, and it didn't go out. So, And I'm at second. They go to make a pitching change, and I, yeah, I, I, got, I let it affect me too much, as I did from time to time. But I was, uh, and I swear to this day, I was not, pointing or talking at Kevin Towers. He I wasn't he wasn't even a thought. Now, Larry Lucchino, I can say that that was probably on my mind because this is also the guy that told me, yeah, we've built that little porch in right field for you. Well, that's a 10-feet piece off of the foul pole, and he expected me to hit the ball right down the line every time. Well, that's just not how it works, Larry, but that right center field gap that you made about 420, that's impossible. So – Maybe I was making a gesture towards the press box, not at all directed at Kevin, but after watching the replay, I get it. I know what it looked like. It did not look good. So post-game, we ended up winning. Richard really hit a ball after me that bothered me even most that should have gone out, and it didn't. So I'm in the clubhouse. Brian Lawrence is doing his interview. I'm doing an interview. And I get a tap on my shoulder, and it's just Kevin giving me that finger, come here. <laughs> and we go walking into the, what was the coach's conference room at the time. Um, I don't know what it is now, but we, we go in there, and the door shuts behind me. And I remember the first thing he yelled was, you want out of here? Do you want out of here? He starts yelling at me. I'm going, what? what is he talking about? Like, I hadn't even – the thing at second didn't even set in my head. And he went over that. You're you're flipping me off. And I didn't flip anybody off. Like language, yes, was definitely coming out of my mouth. And you could read that word very easily. Um, he thought I was talking to him. And, and next thing you know, it got heated. I thought he was coming to get me. 
he moved a chair. I don't ever think it would have gotten physical. My relationship with him was too good. It was like brothers kind of going at it at the time. Uh, we had another mutual friend, Rick Sutcliffe, who was in the TV booth at the time, and he's got his version of the story, but he barges in, tackles me and throws me onto the table like I was going to go after Kevin or something. I, Yeah, it was heated. It made it to the airways. Jordan, you were probably around for that, but, uh, you know, you could hear it in interviews in the back. It became a big story, but four hours later, we were still sitting there having a beer and we were laughing about the incident that then gets blown out of proportion for the next couple of days, but it was definitely a good one. How about from your perspective, Barry? I saw the ball hit off the top of the wall and I went, oh boy, that's, that's not going to make Phil happy at all. And he, he later asked me, why does the camera always go on me? And I went, that's really not a tough question to answer, Phil. You're always going to do something memorable. So, And then Richie hit the ball after that uh, that should have gone out as well. But uh, And that just made it worse. And, you know, there was some gesturing going on. And I didn't think too much more about it. 45 minutes later, game's over. And I'm getting ready to barbecue some salmon or whatever I was going to do. And my phone starts ringing. And it's everyone. It's Richie Aurelia. It's Rick Sutcliffe. Every everyone I knew at the Potters, Jake Peavy, uh, all of them calling me, going, "Oh, I, uh, you got to do something about this." They're really mad at each other. And then I get a call from Kevin, and then I get a call from Phil. And as soon as those calls got made, I know this. I know them both. I know what they both think about each other. And it was going to be over, and it was over. And as I, we can talk about later, but. Uh, I saw that relationship. There, there are still people out in the world that think, oh, Phil Nevin and Kevin Towers, they hate each other. Well, I was there th- through the rest of San Diego, and I was there in Arizona, and they do not hate each other. I can tell you that. It's a very, it was a very warm and friendly relationship. My element to that story, which is really funny, because <laughs> I had no idea. I was, I think I was in Colorado at the time, one of my seven teams, <laughs> my venture, and I looked down, it's Phil Nevin. And at the time, we became so close and we, we were really good friends. And I answer the phone after our game. And he says, you know what? I think I messed up. And he used a couple of choice words, but he, he goes, I think I messed up. So he tells me the story, how it goes on. And I said, Phil, all you can do is just say you love my, you just got to learn from that. And, and you got, you know what Kevin Towers means to you. And why I say that is that instantly I knew that that wasn't the case where you're just a fiery type of player. That's, that's all it was. I had to kind of walk you off that, that path. And even though those are going to be other phone calls after mine, I thought it was just one of those moments that resonates that really speaks to your passion of what you are as a player. And I've always t- admired that as a teammate, as a, as a competitor. Uh, I absolutely love that. But what this really brings into light is you're talking about four, four hours after that incident and you're having beers with Kevin Towers. I know what he meant to you. And if you can describe that, um, even after that, how it all evolved, because that to me identifies your relationship with Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I think it, uh, I alluded to it earlier, like kind of like brothers going. I mean, you know, it wasn't just, it was a couple next year, um, new ownership came in and, and there was some, you know, they wanted him to make some trades. And I understood that. Uh, uh, and I ended up being Dell. There was a couple of trades in place and I, I actually turned them down due to my veto power, my contract that the super agent here got in there for me. It was nice, but. Uh, one team he didn't have on there was Texas. So I was, <laughs> I, uh, couple led the next year I, I ended up being traded and, uh, we had a long talk right after the trade, Kevin and I, uh, in, in the, you know, more of the business side of, of baseball and what it meant and hoped it wouldn't hurt our relationship, which it did. He and I had many conversations, maybe not as much as we did leading you know, coming down the line, which I'm going to get to. But uh, when my baseball career was over, we found ourselves at, uh, I mean, I'm based playing career. We found ourselves at golf tournaments together, dinners together through mutual friends, 
then started, you know, dinners just together with, with uh, you know, wherever we were. Uh, we started taking a, a golf trip to Pebble Beach. We probably, I think we did it three years in a row uh, where Kevin and I were partners uh, with a couple other guys, Mark Loretta or Mark DeRosa and, and Kevin Millar. Um, and just formed, it was a, just a different relationship than we'd had before. Uh, we, we were very good friends. Um, he was with the Diamondbacks when I was hired. He had a big hand in hiring me to manage their AAA team. Um, after the first year I was there was the year they brought in Tony La Russa, Dave Stewart. Kevin wasn't fired as the GM, but his role was going to change. He had every intent. He was going to leave. <clears throat> um, and when the managerial process started happening, uh, he told me, he said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay through your interview and see how this goes. And I'll never forget the night after uh, the, the night of my interview where I was there all day, um, the phone call that he, he made to me uh, and going over how important, you know, he basically said he was how proud he was of me. And you just didn't hear those words out of Kevin's mouth. That <laughs> uh, just wasn't his, it just wasn't the way he spoke, but I knew what it meant to him. Um, and I knew that, uh, I, I knew that I impressed him for one. He told me that I was, you know, I was going to be his choice and he was going to stay around as long as he could. And he wanted me to get this job that it was time that he, he had the utmost amount of confidence in me that I could get this done. And obviously it didn't work out, but he stayed around through that process, pushing for me to get that job. Uh, you know, our friendship grew even more over a couple of years. And obviously we know what happened a couple of years ago, but you know, it, we talked about it being blown out of proportion. I couldn't have had more respect and care for a friend uh, at the end. You know, Phil, you had uh, such an interesting evolution, not only as a player into your coaching career, and uh, minor league managerial career. The word evolution is what jumps out to me when I listen to the stories that you're telling, because I think even you might admit that perhaps at times you were misunderstood and perhaps at times you were overanalyzed by the media because your coaches and teammates and agents and friends speak so highly of you. Uh, how do you view your career in as much as that notion that perhaps you're emotional or volatile or perhaps misunderstood? Um, I mean, all those adjectives I think are for other people to put on you. Uh, I think that honestly, I don't really, it never was something that I really, I think I shouldn't say I didn't care about it because the perception of you, everybody has a certain care about their perceptions of their own self uh, from other people. The one that the teammates part of it to me, is what's most important when I, when I sit down at the end of the day and you know, my relationships with Mark and, and Mark Loretta, Mark Kotze, Trevor Hoffman, all my friends and teammates that I played with over the years, um, and I know what those relationships are still to this day. I knew what they were when I was their teammate. Um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you come into contact with people. That's what I cherish the most. And that's, that's what I think of when I think of my career more than perfect, anything else. I didn't perfect, a perfect timing, Nev, because I really do. Spending time with you, it is about the teammates. So I'm going to give you a chance. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mention a name. I'd like you to give me an adjective, a word that you that reminds you of them, because I think it's pretty important getting your perspective on this. And I'll start with the Hall of Famer, Alan Trammell. Ooh, that was my childhood hero. I mean, can I elaborate on that? <laughs> I mean, you can, but we're going to go through a list. But yeah, of course. Yeah, I wore his glove. I had his poster. I wore number three in high school. And I wrote a story about him when I was uh, in my sixth grade or eighth grade, maybe. Uh, and sure enough, I got the chance to play with him. Uh, he was my coach when I was with the Padres, coached with him with the Diamondbacks, uh, spent some time, good friend. But long story short, uh, Alan Trammell was my childhood hero. Uh, and getting a chance to play with him and be around him as much as I had was, was certainly awesome. But what a player. I mean, he, he really was a great player. 
You already mentioned him, but I'll say it again. Ryan Klesko. <laughs> Rhino. Oh. Eccentric, maybe? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. How, how about Mark Kotze? Gamer. Gamer. Uh, loyal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great friend. Tony Gwynn. Best hitter I ever saw. Learned, I mean, he was probably the best hitting guy for me. He was the, I would say, as far as relationships go, you know, the Towers, Bochi, <clears throat> most influential on my professional career. But as far as the biggest influence on me as a hitter and making me better, getting me to where I got to with San Diego, without a doubt, just watching the way he did things, uh, his preparation, Tony Wynn made me the, the hitter I was. Mark Loretta. Ooh, absolute professional. Just uh, all these guys, I think the first thing that's going to come to mind, a lot of them anyway, I know where you're going to go down this list. I'm a teammate's going to be the first thing, but uh, as, as pro as pro can get in Mark Loretta. Michael Young from Texas. I say it's hard to beat what I just said about low, but <clears throat> Michael Young – um, same thing, really, is as professional as I, he's going to do great. He's still – he's already doing great things in baseball. Like, he can do whatever he wants to now. If he wanted to manage, I think he's had opportunities to manage. Uh, he wants to run a club. Michael Young is going to be one of the best at whatever he's – whatever he ends up doing in this game, he's going to be one of the best. Even better than he was as a player, a hitter, uh, but he's, he's as professional as they come as well. Touched on one of your golfing buddies, Mark DeRosa. <laughs> sneaky, funny, just sneaky. One of the good, best dudes you, you, you ever could be around. The uh, family. Um, put together a couple really good years. I, nobody knows he was a really good quarterback in college. He had a lot of raw athletic ability, and I don't think he really understood what he had till later in his career, but um, – I mean, as far as work ethic, and he's one of the hardest workers I've ever seen and made him and himself into a good player. Let's talk about the killer bees, Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. Got to combine uh, them, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you got to put them together. Still great friend. Couldn't be more different people. Um, but at the end of the day, two great teammates, Hall of Famers with both of them. Um, the, I, it took me a while but I certainly probably learned more from those two guys uh, and throw Cam and Eddie into that group as well. I certainly learned more from that group that I didn't apply now till later on in my career, but I certainly uh, learned probably more from that original group of pros that I was around than at anybody the rest of my career. Well, that kicks it in. And you just mentioned Ken Caminetti. I'll, I'll, you know, because it's the late, great Ken Caminetti, the warrior. I know what he meant to you. Mm -hmm. But also a guy that really uh, tugs at the heartstrings as well is Daryl Kyle. Yeah. Uh, Daryl and I played together in uh, scout league teams when I would go in, when I was in college, or I'm sorry, when I was in high school, during football season, I would play in scout league teams on Saturdays after my games. And Daryl and I met through that. Our, and then through college, kept the relationship. Our wives became friends probably more so than we did. Uh, and then Daryl, post no hitter in the big leagues, gets sent down to AAA and I was there and couldn't have been a, a better dude, a better teammate. You know, a lot of major league success comes down. He's just one of the guys. Uh, nobody rooted. He's not a guy I don't think – as far as teammates go, I would say there's not a guy you probably rooted for more than Daryl Cobb. Um, you know, just the type of personality he had and, and uh, just, you know, I, I mean, geez, <laughs> we've mentioned KT and Cam and Eddie and Daryl. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a rough subject, but uh, a, a great friend, not a better guy in the world, not a better family man that loved his wife and his kids more than Daryl Cobb. Phil, let me just follow up for a minute with Daryl. And, uh, you know, he and I were very close. And uh, when the tragedy struck, uh, if you recall, I was about as far away from uh, here as I could be, where I needed to be, where I felt I should be. I was about as far away as I could be on an island on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Mm -hmm. And 
I, you know, I got calls from everybody, from Bagwell, from Matty Clement, everybody looking for Daryl so that we could let Flynn know. Can you, you played a, to me, huge part in that episode. Can you talk about your role there? Yeah, I was, uh, I was injured at the time. Uh, I had just spoke to Daryl a few days before because they had just purchased a home not far from us. And he sent me a picture of a Magnum uh, bottle of insignia, Joseph Phelps insignia wine. And he said, when I get home for the all-star break, we're sitting out on my deck, we're drinking this bottle. So anyway, uh, this particular day, it was uh, June, Ju- July 22nd, June 22nd, I'm sorry, um, Jake Peavy's Major League debut. We're playing the Yankees a Saturday day game, and I am injured, and I'm wired for the game. Uh, it's about a half hour before game time, and they're, they wired me up, and guys are messing with me. And he, long story short, Tom Lampkin comes running down in the dugout and asks if I know Daryl Kyle's wife. And I thought he was just messing with me. And then he tells me, he said, they just found Daryl in his hotel room dead. Uh, and Flynn does not know. It, it just, nothing, I don't know. How, it, I can't tell you if things registered or not. I just knew that I needed to do something. And Woody Williams was on the phone and, I ran up and talked to Woody and he said Derek Flynn was on her way home from the store and they were going to stop the game in Chicago and full uniform. I had the clubhouse guy drive my truck out to Flynn's house. I called my wife on the way and Hey, you need to get over there. Here's what happened. Um, I don't really want to set this, the scene as far as getting there, but uh, it was an awful day. Um, I'm glad I got to be there as a friend for her, for sure, but certainly was uh, the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. So. You know what, uh, Flynn, uh, Daryl Kyle's wife at the time, um, it, yeah. it, being around you, Phil, um, it really identifies you as uh, the loyal aspect of who you are in, in handling that situation, uh, which none of us are prepared to do. Um, but it really comes down to uh, the type of person that you are and what you would do for anybody, any one of your teammates. It doesn't have to be Daryl Kyle. It has to be with everybody. And that really identifies you the most, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, like I said, those adjectives are things for other people to, to give to you. The important things are what your friends and your you're your people you interact with every day think of you. The crazy part, I mean, crazy, I hate to say that word with that day. Uh, if if we remember when spring training started, we lost a teammate in Mike Dar in a car accident. Uh, well, Trevor Hoffman and I had put together a bowling event for uh, Mike's children and his wife. Uh, and it happened to be that night because we had a Saturday, like I said, Saturday day game. So that whole day was just, it's like a blur. I mean, things happen with, with what happened with Daryl and, and, and his wife and, and then moving on, you know, you go home and you're trying to let it all sink in. And, oh, okay. Well, let's get ready. We got to go. We got this bowling event for Mike Dar, our teammate that, that passed away, you know, just a few months before that, it was just, just an eerie day. I mean, I'll never forget that. I got a tattooed on my arm for crying out loud. I mean, you guys see that it's, it's, uh, you know, what a day, not in a good sense, but it just, you know, I'll never forget that day. That's one day that I think if you could tell me every moment, like from wake up to you go to sleep, I mean, that's day, that's the one day that I think that sticks out in my life more than, more than any, for sure. You know, Phil, I think we've talked about this now uh, and really you've illustrated it so, so gently and thoughtfully about what a whirlwind life really is for anybody and and you add in the components of being a major league baseball player and I can only imagine the level of complexities there on the positive side of playing in this game you've accomplished and achieved so many different things but I'd like to move you to your final season in the big leagues as a player in 2006 your run with the twins on a very good twins team which you were quoted as saying at the time was as much fun as you had had in the game, at least to that point. What was it about that run that was so different than anything you had uh, experienced leading up to that? 
Well, it was the one. It was the only time I got a chance to play in the playoffs for one. Um, but that club, as soon as I got there, you could see a very young team who'd been together a long time. As you know, the Twins don't have a lot of free agents. Uh, these guys have been together for so long. I know the same coaches. All the coaches that come up to the minor leagues with them. Uh, we had the manager of the year in Ron Gardenhire, Cy Young Award winner with Santana. MVP was Morneau. Joe Maurer won the batting title. I mean, that team had everything. And it was to see how close they were, because it was a group, like I said, that, that all grew up together. Uh, some good some stars on the team, and Torrey Hunter, Kadir, uh, Maurer, Morneau, Santana. I mean, it was just a really cool group of guys. It went by quick. I was only there a month, but that team was never in first place until two hours after the season ended. <laughs> uh, we went into that last weekend, three games back of the White Sox, and we win and they lose every game. Going down to Sunday where we were packed, ready, we're flying to New York to start the playoffs as the wild card. And we're like, well, hey, if this game, the Royals come back and beat them, we're the division champs and we're staying home. And they were losing, and then they come back right at the end of our game. The game ends up going 13, 14 innings. Somebody comes in the clubhouse and says, we're watching the game on TV. Somebody comes in the clubhouse and says, hey, you guys got to go out into the stadium, see what's going on. And if you've ever been to Minnesota, it's how many steps down the stairs, Mark? It's about, yeah. <laughs> about five flights of stairs straight It's down. a workout. As we're getting down the bottom of the stairs, you can hear the state, the, everyone in the Metrodome, it's packed sold out still and they're playing the game on these little tiny jumbotron tvs they got up in the corner and sure enough the the royals come back and beat the white Sox. matt stairs hits a big home run the place goes nuts well we celebrate right on the field we're all laying on the carpet on the astroturf in the middle of the stadium and we celebrated with the fan it was really a neat day uh like i said one of the more fun uh, teams that I was able to be a part of. I know it only lasted a month, but it was a, definitely an awesome experience. We were two and out in the play, or three and out in the play. We got swept in the first round by Oakland, but it certainly was a, a special team to be a part of, even if it was for just a, a quick month. After your playing days, it uh, took you to broadcasting, took you to coaching yeah. um, opportunities, as we touched on earlier about you possibly managing in the big leagues. But also what was happening is uh, your kids were getting older and mm -hmm. they're, they're starting to go. I know how much family means to you. So I want to read this quote because I think it, it adds a little levity to it. Uh, this is Tyler, his oldest son, talking. My dad is a hard-nosed baseball guy, but he's a, he's a softy when it comes to family. And why I say that is Tyler was a 38th pick by the Colorado Rockies, also in the first round. So you're the only nine, the ninth father-son in the, in the first round to go in the draft, which is amazing in itself. But Tyler is starting to get to that point. He had his first big league spring training this year he, after he signed. So my question to you is, it's getting close. And I know there's no certainty to what happens, but Tyler's getting close to getting that call. And I would love to hear what you're going to feel when Tyler makes that call to you. Have you prepared yourself or do you just want to let it happen? Oh, I can tell you, I'll just lose it <laughs> right away. Uh, and we got to get Kyle moving. We get him in the first round. We'll be the first. We got three of us. So it'll be the first three Nevins in the first, in the first round. That would be, nobody's ever done that. So yeah. And Kyle is at actually a freshman at Baylor university, <laughs> which is really cool in itself. Yeah. No, I've gone over that. I've certainly gone over that in my head. Uh, you know, emotional day for sure. You know, both times I've gone in to do my contracts with Brian Cashman with the Yankees. The first thing I said is I said, I'm only miss. Someday I'm going to have to miss a game and I'm not missing my son's first big league game. So uh, when that call comes, yeah, I mean, it's, in, in, you know, that's normal. Uh, but I certainly, uh, yeah, it'll be, wow. I, I play it through my head and you get emotional thinking about it for sure. But, you know, you just, you know, like what it would mean to him more than anything. And I think, that, you know, as any parent, you know, you just want whatever, you know, your kids, 
set themselves out to do. They set goals in life and for them to see how they put in the work and go about their business and have those dreams fulfilled. I mean, as a parent, I mean, that's really all you want, whether it's baseball or, you know, for them to be happy with the things that they're going to be able to do in life as, you know, as their profession as well, just happens to be baseball here. So, um, yeah, it'll be a, It'll be a special day for sure. Oh, best of, yeah, bad man. Best of luck with uh, with Tyler's run and 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 your entire family. But you know you're in an interesting spot right now, personally in your career. And you've talked about your friendship with the Boone family and Aaron Boone being the manager in New York, where you are the third base coach for the Yankees under the bright lights and big stage uh, in the Bronx. You've made no secret about this before. You have managerial experience as well in the minor leagues and have had interest at the big league level. Uh, where do you see yourself now, especially as that dynamic of your friendship uh, with the Boone family plays into this? Yeah, I mean, I, I still, without a doubt, I, I certainly want to manage someday. Uh, but I will say this, it, it was at a point where if I didn't manage, I felt like it would be a failure, not, not a fairly big disappointment. I don't necessarily feel the same way now. Uh, I, I absolutely love where I'm at and what I'm doing. I have a chance to – we go into spring training every year. We got a chance to win a World Series. And, and I really didn't have those realistic aspirations uh, when I went into spring training with a lot of the teams we were on that when I was playing. Uh, I'm not saying we didn't have those thoughts. It's just the realistic aspirations. You know, are we going to have a chance to win a World Series this year? Well, I mean, it would take something extremely out of the ordinary for us. But for – where I'm at now, we have that opportunity every day uh, to, to be a part, to put that uniform on every day, to be a part of that organization, um, the people involved, being in Yankee Stadium, call Yankee Stadium my office every day, um, and to do it with one of my best friends. Uh, I'm not sure how you can beat that, really. I mean, obviously, winning one as a man is sure, but um, – you know, I don't think like before I had to say, hey, I'll take any job. I just want to manage. But I still do. But I think it would have to be the right place, the right time and a special spot to take me away from not only my good friend, but certainly a, a special uh, organization. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, really the greatest organization in all sports. So. Remarkable story. And, and we really can't thank you enough for the time, Phil. I appreciate it, guys. It's been fun. Really fun. I'll tell you what. If anybody out there is a fan of this game and you're a fan of hardworking people in any facet of life, you've got to appreciate Phil Nevin's story. So congratulations on the uh, first round selection of your son, Tyler, your other son at Baylor, uh, the other things going on in your life. Phil Nevin. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.